0: honor and the praise that is due your name and God we worship you and you alone God, only you are worthy of that praise and God you are so good to us God be with us now as we hear your word preached be with Mike as he brings the message God use him and give us ears to hear what your word has for us this morning Today's passage is from Exodus twenty four. I'm going to be reading uh, verses three through let's do three through eleven. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. In accordance with all these words, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing in our series uh, in Exodus, and what we, we've just sort of concluded going over uh, the, the terms of the covenant. So a few weeks ago, Steve preached about this moment where the nation of Israel, they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. God is going to form them into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, his treasured possession, and what's going to happen is he cuts a covenant with them. He makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. And so after that, the Lord uh, gives them the Ten Commandments that sort of summarizes the way of life that Israel is going to embody. And then after that, the Ten Commandments sort of get applied through this thing called the Book of the Covenant. So uh, we saw the Book of the Covenant can kind of be split up between um, laws having to do with worship and laws having to do with our responsibility to each other, sort of neighborliness. And so we've just completed the, all the terms of the covenant, the, the words, the Ten Words, like the Ten Commandments, and the Laws. And so, what we're seeing today is the moment where the covenant is ratified. The covenant is sort of put into effect. I figure now would be probably a good time to talk about what exactly a covenant is. So, most of our relationships as people are informal. They're informal relationships. So, you know, the, the friendship that you have with uh, with A coworker—that's an incidental relationship, right? It's just—it's a relationship that you happen to have because you both work at the same place. Uh, Friendships that we have with with friends—we we enjoy them because of affinity. We share coffee with them. These are sort of informal relationships. But there are other kinds of relationships that are so serious. And so important that the terms of the, the relationship kind of needs to be set in stone. The relationship has to undergo certain protections, right? So if you're going to enter into real estate investing with a partner, it would be wise to do that with more than just a handshake and a well-wish, right? You probably want a contract involved somewhere because it's a big, important sort of relationship. It's a relationship that has to be protected by laws and mutual expectations and all, and all that sort of thing. Another example is a constitution. So we've, we've talked about that. The covenant is kind of like a constitution where the citizenry agrees to the terms of the constitution. The, I think the, the biggest example of, of a modern-day covenant is a marriage. That the, the act of union between a man and a woman is so powerful that it needs to be, it needs to be sheltered by promises, by vows, So these are modern-day covenants. These are kinds of relationships that are so important and so weighty that they require a shelter. They require a context, contracts, promises, this and that. Now, it would be a mistake for us to look at these these shelters, these protections around these relationships, and to say oh man, this seems so restrictive, why does it have to even be this way, right? So, for instance, take marriage vows, again. I don't think there are many husbands or wives who, who read their marriage vows, like, to have and to hold from this day forward, and their reaction is like, oh my gosh, this is so restrictive, I can't stand this, it's so legalistic, right? Like, A, if you're someone who is making yourself eligible for marriage, and your fiancé expresses that kind of sentiment toward your marriage vows, you should rethink that one. Like, obviously, these are not restrictive, you know, legalistic, that's the, it would be a bizarre way of thinking about these sorts of things. Like, the, the, the laws, the restrictions that a covenant gives are shelters. And in fact, it's, it's actually within the context of these restrictions that these relationships come to life. So, the only thing that makes poetry poetry are the restrictions if if you 're trying to write something and you just write words on a page with no sort of rhythm or meter or sense of of any of sort of the restrictions of poetry then it 's not going to be poetry right it 's just words on a page. What makes it poetic are the restrictions it 's in uh, taking a group of words and, and making them work within iambic pentameter that you create something beautiful. The restrictions in poetry make the the, the language flourish in a way that it, it can't possibly flourish without those restrictions. That's, I think, the way that we ought to be thinking about the laws of the covenant. That's how we ought to think of our marriage vows. That, that's how we ought to think about the, the, the goal of, constitution and, and of constitutions and... and and uh, society itself, that it's within it, it, the, the restrictions ought to be of a kind that make the relationship flourish and have life. And that's what we have here. That the covenant of the Lord, this context where, where, where God relates to his people, what he's doing is he's putting in place these, these terms so that the relationship can happen in the first place and so that it can flourish. So what we're seeing in today's passage is, is the ratifying of God's covenant. So in other words, what, what's, what's going on is that God's covenant is being put into effect, right? So uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to sort of walk through the passage and, and just highlight these different steps of, of how the covenant gets ratified here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we'll draw some, some conclusions from that. So there are a few things that God's covenant includes. So the first thing that God's covenant includes is a promise. So one of the features of a covenant, especially of the kind that, that God seems to be putting into place with Israel, which is one of the—it would have been a familiar covenant, actually, for, for many of them. It's the covenant that a king makes with his people. So one of the features of that kind of covenant, and it's, it's true of this one, too, is that the king would make certain promises. And here we see the, the exact same things what Steve preached on, that as the children of Israel come to the foot of the mountain— God makes them certain promises. He's promising that Israel will be his treasured possession. He's promising that they will live under God's rule. He's promising that God will be their just and good king. He's promising that he will be with them. He's promising, in other words, this very intimate sort of relationship with his people. So the covenant includes a promise. The second thing it includes is a vocation. In some ways, this covenant here with Israel isn't entirely new. It's certainly not the first covenant that God makes in the scriptures. The first covenant he makes is with the man named Abraham. He tells Abraham that, that his family is going to grow and develop and multiply and eventually become a, a people who will bless the nations. And so what we're seeing here is, is that God has kept his promise to Abraham. His family has multiplied into a great nation. And it's going to be through this nation that God's mission is will be born out into the world. And so what, what, what's part of this covenant is the mission, is the vocation of being God's people. It, and, and specifically where you see this is, is, that, is, is that phrase where God calls Israel a kingdom of priests. He calls them a kingdom of priests. In other words, they're going to mediate God to the world. They're going to make God's kingdom available to the world. So a promise, a vocation, and then finally a way a way of life. Typically in covenants, there are expectations on what each of the parties are going to do. So you see this in constitutions. There are expectations for what it means to be a citizen of the United States, right? And if you, as a citizen, break the terms of the constitution, you lose your rights. You've, you've functionally forfeited your citizenship in some ways, or at least the, same, the, the status as a citizen that you would have otherwise had. Like, the, in the terms of the, of the Constitution, you're meant to keep up a certain way of life, and if you don't, you run the risk of losing your rights as a citizen. And so we actually see the same thing here in the Covenant. In order to remain under God's rule, in order to remain a part of God's kingdom, Israel would have to abide by his way. So the Book of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, is kind of like a Constitution, so it's a promise, a vocation, and a way of life. And so all these things get laid out in front of Israel. And what we, what we see here is this sort of like call and response thing where Moses announces the, the covenant to Israel. He reads all the terms. And then they respond with all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. So in other words, that's kind of them signing the dotted line. Right? That's, the, that's the handshake at the end of the business deal. That's them agreeing that they will be a part of this. Now, here's the question that I want us to ask first this morning. From what we see in Exodus, do we relate to God on our terms or on his? From what we see in Exodus, do we relate to God on our terms or on his terms? And what I want to point out about what we've seen so far is that there was no bartering in the making of the covenant. There's no like, you know, God says, well, I'll exchange these promises uh, as long as you guys live this this way. And then Israel's like, uh, can we tweak this part and this part and uh, yeah, I mean, if you uh, if you up a couple promises here, then then I guess I could pay out a little bit more uh lifestyle here. There's none of that. Right? God is the sovereign. And so not only is he going to to dictate the promises in the covenant, but he's also going to dictate the expectations. The whole terms, the terms of the whole covenant, it's all up to God, right? So there's no bartering, there's no joint authorship, there's no co-authoring the covenant. I think sometimes you you meet believers who say they're Christian, but they have no use for the scriptures. They say they're Christian, and they have no use for God's people, like meeting together with a local body who would hold them accountable and and, uh, you know, encourage them and, and these sorts of things. And, you know, I once had a conversation with, uh, with a bartender in the north woods of Wisconsin uh, where he was saying, like, I don't, I don't need church. I don't need uh, any, any sort of scriptures or anything. I am a Christian, though, but I meet with God by going out into the woods, and it's beautiful out there, and I can feel that God is real. And it's like, hey, I'm not bashing that. That's straight out of Romans 1. Obviously, the natural world... Uh, shows us something about the reality of God. The issue, though, is that he's kind of assuming a lot. He's assuming that he gets to dictate what God can expect of him. And so in, in his mind, the only reasonable thing that God could possibly expect of him is just simply that he experienced God. That's what it's all about, right? It's about the experience of God. I get that in the woods. I don't get that in church. I don't get that when I read the Bible, and therefore, the woods is all I need. C.S. Lewis kind of speaks to this. He talks about a man who loves the sea. He loves standing on the shore of the sea, looking at the sea raging and all these sorts of things, but he can't stand maps or compasses. He can't stand sea maps or navigation tools or any of that. That's all just dusty, irrelevant. That has nothing to do with the experience of the sea, Right? But woe to the man who tries to sail on the sea without the sea map. Woe to the man who tries to tackle the storms without a compass and navigation tools and these sorts of skills. Of course, the the eventual point of it all is that we would experience God. That's what Christ is giving to us, is God himself. But woe to us if we think that we can possibly approach the Almighty— Without a covenant, God sets the terms of the relationship. And it's not arbitrary, it's for our good. Not to prevent us from meeting with God, but so that we can meet with God. So at the close of the covenant ceremony, once the terms have all been stated and all that, the, the covenant would be ratified. So in other words, there would be some sort of a sign, like a gesture of some sort that would indicate, all right, it's gone into effect. So you can imagine the need for this. Like For instance, if, uh, if a minister at a wedding led the two, led the couple in their vows and then just sort of like shook hands mutually, like, all right, I'm out. And then there was no announcement of the couple. There was no processional. They both just left out, like, an emergency exit. And then everybody, there was no recessional music. Just everybody had to conclude that, oh, apparently this is over. That would be awkward. It'd be weird. There'd be no sort of, like, sign that, all right, marriage has gone into effect, right? We sort of need something like this. We need rituals to sort of uh, conclude Something to, to indicate that it 's gone into effect, and so that 's essentially what Moses is doing here that 's what 's happening when he what i 'm calling ratifying the covenant, and the way that he does it is pretty grisly, so he he starts to sacrifice animals, so the way that the covenant is going to be ratified will be through blood, it will be through blood, they start sacrificing oxen, some are sacrificed in what's called a peace offering, which is essentially just sort of like a free will, thankful offering. The others are sacrificed to what's called a burnt offering, which is an offering for sin. It's an offering to, to um, announce the forgiveness of God for sin. And so Moses starts collecting blood from all these sacrifices in basins, and it's taking lots of them, right? So he's, he's, he's collecting all this blood into basins, half the blood is splashed on the altar that he's created, and then the other half he takes and he grabs probably a branch of a, of a plant called hyssop so a long leafy sort of thing, and he dips the, the branch into the basin and he sprinkles the crowd with the blood. Now they don't have washing machines in the ancient Near East, right? So the the stains of that blood will probably be permanently in those garments, right? So he's walking around the crowd and splashing them with the blood of these sacrifices for their sin and for their thankfulness, so that they are covered with the sign that this covenant has gone into effect. The sign that's literally on them is that by this blood, you have been made into the people of God. So it would have just been this hugely visceral, powerful uh, image to them of sort of the cost of their salvation and the meaningfulness, the weightiness of this moment. They're literally wearing the light. So now, typically what would happen after a covenant had been ratified is that the two parties, so the, the two folks involved in the covenant would have a meal. They would share a meal. And so... What what you get here in this this passage is you see Moses, Aaron. uh, Aaron's he has two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and so it's the two of them and then 70 leaders of the people of Israel. Uh, The whole nation is not going to go up the mountain. Instead, what happens is the the whole nation is sort of represented in these leaders that are going up the mountain, right? So the, the leaders are sort of carrying with them the identity of the whole nation as they go up the mountain. And when they arrive they encounter God, and it's a, it's a strange passage. Um, first off, God has no body. God has no body. He's a spirit. But what you, the impression that you get throughout the scriptures is that when God wills it, he can be made visible. So he has no body, and yet something about God can possibly be seen. The issue is, and this is what the impression that you get through a number of the scriptures, is that when a person lays eyes on whatever that, that visible revelation of God is, they die. They're encountering life itself. And so the, the power of life itself is so strong that when it encounters finite beings like us, it destroys us. And instead, what we, what we see in this moment is that the the leaders of Israel, they, they see this, they have this visible encounter with God, and God does not lay his hand on them. They're allowed to look, and yet it's still unclear exactly what they're seeing. Feet are mentioned, but everything else, I mean, you, you notice even the language of the, of, of the text that's like, and there were under his feet, as it were, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement, like sapphire stone, like the, the as it were, it's, it's language like, well, it's almost like, or it's as if, so the, the author is sort of groping for what kind of an of image to, to use to convey what it is that they're seeing. Whatever it is that the representatives of Israel are seeing, it's something that, that they can only approximate, language can only approximate what it is that they're seeing. But in any case, they are in the presence of God, and these representatives, they share this meal And this meal celebrates the fact that the covenant is now in place. And so from this point forward, God's relationship with the people of Israel will be different. Uh, It marks this sort of significant moment where God has brought together a way for humanity to relate to him. So from this point forward in the story, whenever someone wants to approach God, they will have to do it through this covenant. So as the nations you know, are drawn into the nation of Israel, in order to encounter God, they will have to somehow be included in this covenant. So what ends up happening is that this ethnic clan, Israel, they become the center of God's mission, and now they're going to go out and they're going to make his kingdom available to the world. And that happens in a number of different ways. Their obedience is key to that. Uh, their obedience is sort of the, the way that that. God's kingdom will be displayed to the world. But obviously, Israel's unable to to embody it fully. They're unable to to live in such a way that that the kingdom is really made available. They fall short in the covenant. They break the covenant endlessly, constantly. And so the story of Israel is this, this constant back and forth where Israel breaks the covenant and God extends forgiveness, and they break the covenant. He warns, extends forgiveness. And then finally, there's there's uh, judgment that falls as a result. And, and so as the story progresses, you get this sense that something has to change. Something has got to give. Something has to change in order for Israel to be what they need to be, in order for God to restore the relationship with humanity. Something has to change. One of the prophets of, of Israel, Isaiah, he writes about a day coming where God will bring about a new covenant where God is going to set the terms for a new relationship. And, and Isaiah communicates this through poetry, through, through metaphor. And he, so what he imagines is another feast on a mountain. And at this feast are not just, it's not just Israel that's represented at this feast on the mountain, it's all the nations. That at this eventual feast, all the nations will be represented on this mountain. And this is why Isaiah writes. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken so he's describing this moment where God's covenant will be made complete and it will be made secure where the faithful from all peoples will be drawn in and there will be nothing that can threaten the relationship even death itself will be swallowed up and so how does this covenant end up coming about? How does this new covenant begin? So I want to read this passage from the book of Matthew, where once again we see this concept of the blood of the covenant, the blood that Moses sprinkled on Israel. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what Jesus is doing there, when he, when he gives them that cup at that Passover supper, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, there is going to be another covenant, and like the original one, this one will be ratified with blood. Blood. So he's in this upper room in Jerusalem, the disciples are acting as the representatives of God's people, just in the same way that Moses and Aaron were at, on, when they went up to the mountain. And those disciples, they sit down and they look at Jesus and they behold the God of Israel, and they eat and they drink. They celebrate this meal in the presence of God, and that meal is another covenant meal. And Jesus is telling them that the blood of the covenant is going to come from his own body. Jesus is bringing people into a relationship with God. He is creating a new shelter in which we will meet the Father and live under his rule. Jesus is bringing us into participation in the life of God. And just like the covenant at Sinai, it's going to be ratified in blood. Jesus gives his life to bring us to God. And in our covenant, the one that we are living under, in many ways, it's much the same as the first. It includes a promise, a vocation, and a way. A promise and a vocation and a way. So the promise is that God's kingdom has been freely given by grace through faith. And so all that we're told to do is to respond in faith, and obviously that, that, that word faith, we sort of tend to think of faith as sort of like agreement to certain propositions, right? So here's an idea. Do you agree or not? I agree. All right, you have faith. Well, that's not so much what the Bible's after, right? Because in that case, the demons also have faith. You know, if, if, they, if they were asked, did Jesus offer himself up for the sins of the world, a demon would say, yeah, I'm in agreement. And it would be absurd to then say, you have faith, right? So obviously they don't. They don't have faith. Because that's not what the Bible is really describing. When when the Scriptures talk about faith, they're, they're, they're not talking about sort of just a belief in a certain set of ideas, even though, of course, you can't have faith without that. What they mean is trust. Faith in the Scriptures is sort of a split between trust and allegiance. You're trusting that Jesus is able to save and that his work on the cross is for you. And in that act of faith, you're also giving him your faithfulness. You're giving him your allegiance. In the Old Covenant, to, to, when you sort of join in the covenant, you would, uh, if, if you're a male, you would undergo uh, sort of a grisly process of, uh, of being included. You'd be circumcised, right? Uh, and that was the covenantal sign. In the New Covenant, we also have a sign, and it's Baptism. That when when you come to Jesus in faith, when you put your trust in him, you get baptized. Baptism is as closely related to the covenant as the exchange of rings is related to marriage. The early Christians couldn't conceive of a believer who wouldn't be baptized. You know, so if there was a a guy who uh, wanted to get married, who wanted to take part in the covenant of marriage— and he's like, yeah, I, I, I would love to be married, um, but just so you know, baby, I'm never going to wear my ring. Be suspicious, right? You should be suspicious of that and question whether or not this is the guy. I feel like I'm giving a lot of marriage advice today. Um, but like, so if, if he's just weirdly reluctant to wear his ring outside the house, then, then it would be, you know, reasonable to ask why. In the same way, the early Christians, when someone converted to Christ uh, and they wouldn't want to get baptized, they would feel it's very reasonable to ask why. This is the covenant sign. You ought to do it. So I only say that to say, if, if you have put your faith in Christ and have not been baptized, uh, you ought to do that. You know, like, we'll fill up the baptismal right now. It'll be full of bugs and it'll be really cold, but we'll do this. Um, no, but we'll set up like a thing and, 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 and do a baptism. If you have not been baptized and you have put your faith in Christ, you must be baptized. So this covenant includes a promise. It also includes a vocation. And really, it's the same vocation as the people of Israel. So we as God's people are sent into the world to make the kingship of Christ available. We are sent into the world to make the kingdom of Christ available. Jesus instructed us to do this by announcing the news that he had been enthroned as king. To announce the news that God is forgiving sins. So Peter actually describes us, one of the apostles of Christ, when he wrote a letter uh, to the church, uh, sort of dispersed throughout the Greek-speaking world. He describes us, the church, in the same language that God describes Israel. He calls us a kingdom of priests. We are put here to mediate God to the world around us to display. His glory. So there's a promise, there's a vocation, but then also there's a way. There's a way of life. And I think this way of life is very, very related to how it is that we make Christ's kingdom available. So the whole idea is that the nations would know that God was with Israel by their way of life. They would be able to observe that God's kingdom was in effect among them. And it would happen through their obedience. So what did we see in the book of the Covenant these past few weeks? We've seen that, that the way of the Lord can be summed up in worship and in our, our community. So worship, at Trinity, we talk about being all of God, all of life, all of us. Worship is what Christianity is all about. So if you were ever asked by somebody, well, what, what am I going to gain if I become a Christian? Right? Uh, I think one of the first answers that would occur to me to say is, well, you uh, gain a worthy object of worship. You, You are restored to your purpose, worshiping the truly holy God. You gain a right object of worship. When we live our lives to God's glory, when our way of being is all about making God more famous, it's all about the fame of God, Things change. When we live that way, we make different decisions. We become more courageous. We become more self-giving, more capable of love, because it ends up being less and less about us and more and more about the glory of God. When we come together on Sundays, we lift God's name up. When we come together, we do the work of worship together, and we display what is most important to us. But also the, the book of the covenant wasn't just about worship; it was also about community, about so, sort of social shared life. God brought together not a, not individual persons who are going to then become atomized and like retreat to their rooms with an iPad and never talk to anybody. God created a people who would image Him in the way that they treat each other. So how will we display God by how we treat each other if we're never around each other. Obviously, the pandemic has made this hard. It hasn't made it impossible. The pandemic has made shared life hard. It has not made it impossible. We are blessed with a number of different technologies, that, like phones. We've had those for a while. Zoom now. I have Zoom fatigue, but like, we're also blessed by these different technologies because it makes it possible for us to Respond to God together and pray together and get into each other's lives. You know, we can do things, like if you're in a resilient population, uh, you can identify folks in the church and just sort of identify a circle of people to kind of float in. There are still ways for us to be together. We hear this morning, this is an opportunity for us to get into each other's lives. Do not weary of doing good. Or meeting together, however we can. So the, the new covenant involves a promise, a vocation, and a way. This is what life in the covenant means. And praise God that we have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ and made into a new people. So if you would pray with me. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. That this, this new covenant, it was not established by the blood of bulls and oxen or lambs. It was established by the blood of Christ. So, Lord, we praise you that you sacrificed yourself so that we could be brought to God. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, let us abide by, by the way of this covenant, that we would put our faith in you. We thank you that you relate to us not by our works, but by your grace. And, Lord, I pray that we would respond um, daily in, in repentance um, the, the way that the nation of Israel responded, that all, the words, all that the, the Lord has spoken, we would do. Um, that when we fail, we would be reminded of your forgiveness, and that we would return to your way, once again saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Amen.